name's Hadley, I'm a junior. I'm Tate's co-leader for prayer team. Like he said, would love to have you all for that. Would love to talk about that. Um, for right now, I'm gonna read our scripture for tonight, which is from Genesis chapters one and two. You can follow along in your bulletin. This is the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us and then let's, let's get after this for the next few minutes. Lord Jesus, you are good and you give good things to us. You are generous. You don't have to be asked twice. We don't have to twist your arm. We don't have to say things in a certain way to release your generosity. You're bent towards and leaning towards giving grace, giving yourself. So my simple request tonight is do it. Do that here. Do it now. Share yourself with us. We pray in your name. Amen. Now, everyone in the room has a movie in which there's a scene that's etched into your memory. It's one of those scenes that just hits different than all the other stuff that you watch. Like, we watch shows all the time, we go to movies all the time, and stuff goes right across our eyes and we forget it. But you've got a scene in a movie that you could recite from memory. You could act it out if you had to. That scene for me comes from uh, one of Leonardo DiCaprio's early movies called Blood Diamond. Now, the statute of limitations for spoilers has long passed for this movie, so we're going to spoil it if you haven't seen it, but I'll tell you a little bit about what it's about. It's a movie based on real-life events, which was the Civil War in a, a country called Sierra Leone. And it was, it was in the 1990s, and the war ended around the early 2000s. The movie is called Blood Diamond because the rebel army that had started this civil war was funding itself through diamonds that they were mining in Sierra Leone's diamond mines. That was paying for the civil war. It was blood money. Now, that rebel army unfortunately shared a name with us. They were called the Revolutionary United Front, or RUF, and the movie is filled with... Um, <laughs> You know, right before they raid a village and kill everyone, they're like, R-U-F, R-U-F. And it's like, ugh. I was at school here in the uh, early 2000s, and the first Google result for R-U-F was them. <laughs> so we were like, we're not the terrorist group, and we're not trafficking children, um, more the campus ministry. But this group, R-U-F, was waging this brutal war in Sierra Leone. 
it was infamous for that, for child soldiers. They were the ones who would raid villages and boys as young as 10 years old, they would kidnap them and take them to indoctrination camps where they drugged them, brainwashed them, and made them into killing machines. So the movie Blood Diamond follows the story of a boy named Dia Vandy. The thing you gotta know about Dia is that Dia and his dad were wrapped around each other, wrapped around his father's finger. And his father was wrapped around his finger, attached at the hip. You could see it in their eyes, how much they adored each other, did everything together, soccer, took them to school in the morning, family dinner. Well, one morning, that rebel group raided their village and opened fire on everybody. And Dia and his father run for cover, and a lot of the moms and dads in the village are killed, and a lot of the young boys are rounded up. And after the the shooting and the violence is over, uh, Dia and, and his father were separated in the chaos. After it was over and they left, Dia's father comes out of hiding and begins a desperate search for his son, Dia. Well, then the movie shifts to Dia being taken off to this camp, and there's one of the rebel leaders who's got these boys lined up. These are innocent little 10-year-old boys just taken from their families. And he yells at them, and he says, your mothers and your fathers are dead. They're weak. Your parents are weak. They do nothing but suck blood from this country. But you, you're men, and you are going to save this nation. You are killing machines. That was the beginning of a year for Dia in that hellish boot camp as a child soldier. But Dia's father never stops looking for him. He never stopped looking for him. And you know how I said there's a, there's a movie, but there's a scene in the movie that everybody has that's etched in your memory? Well, for me, it's the scene when Dia's father finally finds his son. And he finds him late at night. He's at this terrorist camp and his father comes up to the edge of it and the boys are are drinking and playing cards and they've all got their guns wrapped around them and he says, Dia, Dia. Dia looks over and he doesn't recognize his father. And he pulls his weapon on his father and he says, enemy. And the scene goes like this. From there, they're face to face, Dia and his father who has come for him. His father has a gun to his head from his son, and with laser-like intensity, the father is staring into his son's eyes. And he says, Dia, Dia Vandy, from my family and my tribe, you are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire for you, making plantains and red palm stew with your sister. And the cows wait for you, and the stray dog who loves only you. I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you. And you will come home with me. 
and you will be my son again. That is Genesis 1 through 3 in your Bible. It maps perfectly onto what's happening in the opening chapters of God's story of rescuing people brainwashed, indoctrinated, people who have been wrapped up in terrible things. That's the opening of the Bible. It's the background of what Hadley read a minute ago and what's on your page. And how so, real quick, how so? Because there was no talk about soldiers in here or warfare or anything like that. Here's the connection. The Bible is a historical book. It's not ideas that just dropped out of heaven of how to live a good life. It's history, and it's interpreting history, which means this. Every text in the Bible has a context. And you can't understand the text until you have grasped the context. Just like in real life. I don't know what you're saying until I know the context that you're saying it in. So the Bible is a book filled with books and authors, particular authors, writing to particular people in a particular place at a particular moment in history, going through a particular set of circumstances. That's what context is. So what's the context of what you read on the page, which can seem pretty innocent. In the beginning, God created, and you're like, straightforward. Like, if you have any familiarity with the Bible or Christianity, you've probably heard that. If you don't, that might be news to you, but pretty straightforward. What's the context or what's the background of those words? Here it is briefly. These words in Genesis reached God's people, or the Israelites or the Jews, reached God's people right after their supernatural rescue or deliverance out of slavery in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. For point of comparison, America isn't 400 years old and isn't even close. I got my parents a subscription to Ancestry.com, as every good son or daughter does at some point as your parents get older, and um, it couldn't get past 300 years ago. It just got stuck. It got to Scotland, and then the trail goes cold. 400 years. Nobody in your family tree remembers any other life than being property, a slave that belonged to Egypt, that belonged to Pharaoh. The Israelites were generation after generation of Diavandis kidnapped from their home and taken somewhere else and told lies about who they are and what they're for. This is critical if you're going to read Genesis on its, on its terms and not yours. Genesis isn't just God saying, oh, by the way, I made some stuff in six days and then I rested and just thought you should know. It's this stuff we're talking about. Urgent, need-to-know information that hit his people in the days or the months after this hostage rescue where he has delivered them out of slavery. And this is God with laser-like intensity looking in the eyes of his numbed people and him saying to them, Pharaoh has lied to you. You're not who he's told you you are. His lies have wrecked you. 
You don't belong to him. You belong to me. And he says, the God who breathed the cosmos into existence is the God who breathed into your nose that brought you life. And he says, I am your father, and you will be my son again. That's what's going on as the Bible opens. So for the Israelites, God is arguing against the lies that were wrecking their lives. Deeply embedded lies about who they are, who they belonged to. And tonight as you hear these words, this is where God's word is timeless and fresh and new and cutting edge. Tomorrow's news today. Because as we hear these words, he is as aggressively tonight arguing against lies that you and I believe that are sunk into our bones that have been in the air for a lot longer than 400 years. Lies that we believe that are wrecking us. Lies about who are you, whose are you. I don't really think all that much has changed from the Israelites in what they were going through and in us and what we experience in 2023. That might sound like a big claim, but I don't think too much has changed between them back then and us now, and I think that's what makes this so relevant. So I get it, there's obvious differences. There's no, we don't live in a country, there's no literal dictator saying, I own you, you're mine, your property. But I wonder if ours is an invisible slavery. I wonder if it's a voluntary slavery. I wonder if we're willing participants in it. I think we're just as captive as they were. Perhaps just as brainwashed and therefore we're just as unclear about who we are. Let me compare and contrast now. If society said to God's people back then, if, if society said to them, you do not belong to God, you belong to Pharaoh. Today, society says something very similar, just changes out a few words. You do not belong to God, you belong to you. So not so much he is your master, today, you are your master. So we didn't grow up hearing your property, you belong to someone. We grew up hearing, follow your heart. You be you. You do you. Discover your authentic self deep down and don't let anybody keep you from, from expressing that. Be true to yourself. Or you got to do what makes you happy no matter the cost. You've got to do what makes you happy no matter the cost. We sing songs or we hear them all the time with lines like, it's your life, do what you want. Follow your own path. I don't know if you've ever listened. Maybe this is a depressing admission about myself. Have you ever listened? Um, the New Year's Eve ball drop in New York City, the big crystal ball that comes down. They play New York, New York right afterwards. But have you ever listened for a few more minutes? One of the next songs that they sing to help America welcome a new year is Frank Sinatra, I Did It My Way. 
It's an American virtue. And look, these things, they sound good to our ears. Some of you might be wondering, why is he taking issue with this? Like, that's kind of like my life mantra. Like, get to do whatever I want? I mean, can't we raise two thumbs up and say, I like that life. I want that life. It sounds good. And one of the reasons it sounds so good, including to me, is because it's so familiar. Again, we've been, not just us, our parents, our grandparents, everyone's been growing up in it. There's a college professor. Uh, he's been working with college students for 10 years or so. And he wrote a book last year called You Are Not Your Own. And the reason he wrote a book is he'd noticed in his students, office hour conversation kind of stuff, he'd noticed the way my students are thinking about themselves and thinking about life, it's changing. So he first starts kind of looking at Gen Z, and then he, then he looks, uh, he's like, he's a millennial, he's like, oh, it, it's in all my friends too. Oh, it's in me too. He describes this voluntary slavery uh, that, that we live in this way. He says, our society operates on the assumption, this isn't conscious, it's deeply embedded, we're not even thinking about it. We operate on the assumption that we are our own. If you're a Christian in the room, I bet money you think of yourself this way. If you're not a Christian, I bet money you think of yourself this way. If you're super spiritual, not spiritual, this is the water you've swum in your whole life. Where does this idea come from? The problem is everywhere, everywhere. We've been given the promise that we are the author of our story. Others can give us advice, but they can't tell you how to live your life. To be human today is the radical and exciting responsibility to discover yourself. And I want to say again, it does sound exciting. It sounds kind of magnificent. To get to be the author, to get to, to the radical, exciting responsibility to discover yourself, to put your personal wants and desires above all else, other people, other things, kind of appealing. But here's the thing, here's the problem. Do any of you want to have a roommate like that? Do any of you want to date someone like that? Who's putting his or her biggest desires, wants, and dreams above all else and all people else? Do any of you want to live with someone without much kind of that main character energy going on where you're like, is there room for me in this relationship? It sounds appealing until you put the shoe on someone else's foot and you say, do I want to live with that or be in a relationship with a person like that? And then we see the flip side. We're like, well, maybe there's a dark underbelly to this stuff. Now, whatever you have in your hands, put it down because I don't want anything thrown at me. But you could argue that Taylor Swift is one of the more talented Influential advocates of this you belong to you narrative. Hold with me before there's a riot. She's so good at what she does and so brilliant with her lyrics and her music, but there's a lot of depth to her, her, her songs. She's a, she's, a, she's a perfect barometer of this moment, but to her credit, this is how I make sure I don't get jumped later. To her credit, <laughs> she sees the dark underbelly of this stuff too. 
And the way that I know is that last May, about a year ago, she gave the graduation address for NYU in Yankee Stadium. And this is what Taylor said. It can be overwhelming to make the right decisions and figure out who you want to be. But I have some good news. It's totally up to you. I also have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. I respect her for saying the quiet part out loud because you're not supposed to say that last sentence. Nobody else says it. Even though we all feel it, the pressure to be God, to discover your own identity, to just kind of out of the raw material of whatever, just to concoct, uh, this is who I am, and for that to be final and not changing every two months, to kind of find out how to make sure you are on the path to happiness and make sure you didn't accidentally get on the wrong path. That's a lot of pressure. To make sure that your life matters, to kind of create a set of personal values that you're going to live by and hold other people to, that's a lot. That's the terrifying part. I mean, I'm thinking like this morning, it took me like three or four minutes just to decide if I wanted to eat cereal or not. Like I had trouble with the first little question of the day and I'm 42 and I don't know how much progress I've made on any of those questions on my own. So I think she gets it. It is terrifying if it's all up to you and the question is who among us can bear the weight of that load? Statistics would suggest that nobody in your or my generation is bearing that weight well at all. I'm not going to recite them to you. It'll ruin the first day of class vibes. But you know, you've, you've seen them. We can't bear the weight. And do you know what happens when you, when you are in an environment or pressure that you weren't designed to handle? you crush in and implode. And that's the way, I think there's two given ways that most of us kind of respond to this. Some of us actually do implode, and we'll call that the burned out or the tuned out among us. And the burned out and the tuned out are the ones who, um, the party's over and they're feeling the hangover. They're like, they're with Taylor. They're like, yeah, this has got a dark underbelly. I can't, I don't even know what to do. I can't bear this weight. I can't figure all this out. I'm 18, 19, 20, whatever. Like, I can't do it. So we can maybe sometimes retreat into distraction, into other like little respites, scrolling or porn or binging series after series after series, just waiting for another series to come out that can capture your attention. We're burned out and we're tuned out because we're scared to even think about having to figure our lives out all by ourselves because we think we belong to ourselves. But this is, this is Athens, Georgia. And there's plenty of people at UNG and UGA who can make it happen. And instead of imploding, you're the ones who kind of grit your teeth and gird yourself and push back at all the forces. These are the overachievers among us, the accomplished. You know, maybe it's your first day of freshman year and you're already thinking about next summer is the internship that I've applied to already for next summer gonna yield a job offer four years later senior year? 
That's this person. And we all look up to you because you really do accomplish a lot, but your secret is that you're terrified and anxious and sometimes feel hollow. So you're not burned out or tuned out, but you're busy trying to find that next life hack to make your life successful. But either way, we're self-medicating the pressure away. I keep calling this main character kind of lifestyle, I keep calling it modern, but the lie that it's based on is ancient. It traces all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and again, if you're not familiar with the Bible, Genesis chapter 3 is God's account of why the world feels the way it feels, where everything went south. And in Genesis chapter 3, you see Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, under the influence of evil, do something that had never happened before. A human being turns their back and walks away from God in order to find themselves. Prior to that point, I don't know how long they'd been living with God prior to that point, but every other day, you find yourself in your maker, in God, in nearness to him. But they blazed a path that every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve has followed since. That we are looking to find ourselves, to discover ourselves, to be ourselves with our back turned towards God in one way or another And that makes Adam the first self-made man. Eve, the first self-made woman and the mother of a long line of self-made women and self-made men after her. Now, I actually wrote in my notes, wow, Ben, um, way to rain on the parade of the first day. (laughs) Are you all like ready for the fun fall? I'm just trying to remind us how much we have in common with the Israelites back in their day. Because if you can see the connection, this stuff will leap off the page and actually be very hopeful and encouraging to you. And this is where we begin to end. We share so much in common with them. Here's the main thing we shared in common. They had been stuck for 400 years in a situation they couldn't get out of. The only way out was not a life hack, was not more technology, was not more time and progress. Their only hope was a supernatural, in other words, not something humans can do, supernatural deliverance out of that slavery. And God did it. That's what the book of Exodus is about. And what I want you to see is that we today, the slavery is similar. It might be subterranean, it might be invisible, it might be voluntary, but it, we are just as stuck. We can be just as deceived, just as wrapped up in this rat race, this hamster wheel of proving ourselves just to be ourselves. And just like them, the only way out isn't a life hack, isn't more technology, isn't more years of life. Super natural, gracious deliverance from the God who made you. So if you feel as weary and anxious and confused and stuck sometimes as they did, these words can be as surprising and interesting and provocative and life-changing as God's words were to them. 
They can be that much to you. Genesis 1 is God's lifeline to the burned out, the tuned out, and the busy and the broken. Remember this a month from now when midterms come. Genesis 1 is a lifeline from your maker to the burned out and the tuned out and the busy and the broken. In the beginning, God made it all, tamed the chaos, put everything in its proper place, brought life and beauty and music out of nothing, and made this world that you and I take pictures of every day and love and write songs about and made those days you wished would never end. So what does this mean for us? It means that we get to leave the main character stuff to the main character. In the beginning, before you and me, God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, existing in himself, in relationship with himself, and making us. Here's one line I hope you sure remember. If it's true that you are not your own, then it's also true that you are not on your own. If you aren't your own, you're not on your own. Religious or not, Christian or not, you have a maker who is still talking to you, who is still inviting you, who is still, as Dia's father, grabbing you by the shoulders with laser-like intensity, his eyes to the eyes he made and put in your, in your face. And he's saying, you've been lied to. You're not who they've told you you are, but you belong to me. I made you. And I made you for me and to be with me forever. And it's not just that God made you, but you were made by a God who feels a kindredness to you because he made you like him in his image. In his image. So when he sees you, when all the rest of creation looks at you, he sees something of himself. A kindredness. Relational. And we are loved and pursued by this God who never stopped chasing after us. These words were spoken to a people who had been on the run with their backs turned to their God, not just for 400 years, but since Adam and Eve left the garden. And here he is at the edge of the camp. Dia. Dia. The last thing I want to say to you is that this is only possible coming back to this God being reconciled with your maker, relinquishing control of your life and being comfortable in a life of I'm not my own and that's the best news I've ever heard. The only way that this is possible for you and this freedom is available to you is through Jesus who the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he died so that those who live would no longer live for themselves 
but for him, but for God who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one, including ourselves, from a worldly point of view. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. God has made you now twice. You belong to him twice. The old is gone and the new is here. And all this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. This means you can say the answer to an old question in the Heidelberg Catechism that said, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is good news. It's available to you. Next week, we'll continue the story in the next relationship. Let's pray. Jesus, you who have recreated us, you who restore eye contact between us and the God who made us, do that now. I said earlier, because we see in your word, you say we must be supernaturally delivered from the slaveries that we're in. So show your power that you are mighty to save and prove it and do it and let us see it. We need it and you love to do it. We pray it in your name.